Greetings, and thank you for tuning into the third episode of the podcast series, Early Action in Hepatocellular Carcinoma. This episode is titled, The Role of Primary Care in Hepatocellular Carcinoma Management. Our learning objectives for this podcast are, 1. Describe the treatment landscape for HCC, and 2. Manage quality of life factors and support patient's care coordination. Today, you will be listening to Dr. Ghassan Abu Alpha, Professor of Medical Oncology at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, as well as Dr. Amit Singhal, Medical Director of the Liver Tumor Program, Clinical Chief of Hepatology, and Professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at the UT Southwestern Medical Center in Texas. And now, here is Dr. Singhal. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Amit Singhal. I'm a hepatologist at UT Southwestern Medical Center and serve as the medical director of our liver tumor program. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Ghassan Albu Alpha, today. Um, you can find my and Dr. Ghassan Albu Alpha's disclosures on the activity page. In this podcast, Ghassan and I will provide a brief overview of recent advances in the treatment landscape for patients with HCC, discuss areas where active follow up may improve quality of life and share why primary care provider involvement in care coordination can have a major impact on patient well-being. So, Ghassan, let's start with the treatment landscape. Could you please share with us an overview of the treatment landscape for HCC? Thank you, Amit. Uh, So, no doubt, it's nice to give first a uh, big picture to try to orient us in regard to the stage of the disease, and we can, of course, then select the therapy accordingly. Liver cancer can be treated with surgery. It can be also treated with ablation, like, for example, thermal ablation or transplant. These are curative options. And if anything, those interventions and therapies that I brought in are the one that the only one actually that are curative. For instance, if the patient is caught very early, let's say at stage zero, and the patient has reserved liver function, and the performance test is great, like ECOG, for example, what we call the Eastern Cooperative, Cooperative, Cooperative Oncology Group, or ECOG, performance test is zero. The patient is fully active, and there's only one lesion less or equal to two centimeter. Of course, we can do resection or ablation. This is typically when the patient has the best survival, i.e. living beyond five years and has chance of cure. So again, great performance, early stage disease with great liver functionality, there is a very reasonable chance of continued survival beyond five years. If the patient are found, however, to have early stage disease and have liver dysfunction component, i.e. the liver is not as good, this is where transplant come into play. And there, where still there is a consideration for cure with the cirrhosis and with this five-year survival is more than 60% in the setting of doing liver transplant. If the disease is still limited in the liver, but not amenable to those curative interventions like the one that I just mentioned, then local therapy come into play. And among those different local therapies, this include chemobilization, what we call transarterial chemobilization. It can be done even with that chemo, what we call bland transarterial chemobilization. It can be done with radiation, transarterial radioembolization, 
And interestingly, now stereotactic birdie radiation therapy, or what we call SBRT, has also some value in certain instances. For more advanced disease, being either advanced locally or metastatic, systemic therapy are key. Systemic therapy might not be curative, but if anything, treating them is still very important and appropriate because it can extend survival. Thanks, Kassan. That really provides a very nice overview of the complex treatment landscape that exists for our patients with HCC. It really seems like one of the big take-home points here is the availability of curative treatment options for early-stage HCC. As you mentioned, you know, local ablation, surgical resection, liver transplantation, and these can all afford very long-term survival. With median survival well over five years and really allowing people to live decades after HCC diagnosis. And so if patients are found at an early stage, it's critical to have them considered for one of these treatment options. Now, Ghassan, as you and I both know, it's been an exciting time for HCC with multiple advances in therapies over the past couple of years. Um, and I think a lot, particularly in the systemic therapy space, so it's, I think, particularly exciting for you as a medical oncologist. Can you share some of the noteworthy changes in the treatment landscape over the last couple of years? Sure, I mean, it, it has been, I totally agree, it has been an incredible five years in the treatment of liver cancer. Actually, I jokingly see nowadays, people ask me, what's the standard of care? I say, do you want now or do you want to wait a minute? If anything, to go back first to the early stage disease, we should not forget about laparoscopic and robotic approaches for resection that has reduced, of course, our recovery time and expanded eligibility for transplant. And if anything, now even patient with a larger tumor burden, but however, with good response to local therapy might be considered for those curative approaches. However, on the advances in regard to systemic therapy, they've been endless. If anything, we know very well, historically, chemotherapy was attempted because Remember, this is the only thing we knew about. And if anything, sadly, it did not really cause any improvement in survival of value. We struggled quite a bit with this uh, systemic therapy question until the advent of tyrosine kinase inhibitor, among which the first one was sorafenib, that was evaluated first in the early 2000s and led to finally its approval. Added immunotherapy came into play as a big benefit for our patients. If anything, between the two type of therapies nowadays that we're using, being the targeted therapies and the immunotherapy, we're even further enhancing survival. And among the different immunotherapy combinations, the latest of, of which that we are very happy to have on board is the combination of atezolizumab plus bevacizumab that was just approved just last year in 2020. And this is one of the current first-line standard therapies that are available for our patients with HCC. If anything, this add on to the sorafenib itself and lemvatinib in first line. And together, there are literally eight systemic therapy options available because other than the atezolizumab, bevacizumab, sorafenib, and lemvatinib in first line, we have in the second line, along tyrosine kinase inhibitors, rigorafenib, cabozantinib, and the vascular intercellular growth factor receptor or VGF receptor, ramisurumab, add to immunotherapy, among which pembrolizumab, and also with conditional approval, nivolumab plus ipilimumab. I know it might look like a lot of jargon over here, but if anything, 
it's very important to appreciate the wealth of the choices of therapy that we have for patients. And in other words, it's not like we are giving up because we have none or if we have only limited options per se. I recall, uh, I mean, it's like 20 years ago, literally in the clinic, I used to tell patients, uh, sadly, we don't have any therapy. I have very vivid memories of those sad discussions with the patient that the loved one about that comfort care will be the best option available for them. And amazing, look where we are today. We have first line, we have second line, even third line therapy with cabozantinib. And if anything, I would say that this kind of, you know, uh, total incredible improvement in the outcome have been really a great work between the patient, their loved ones, and the physician and the medical teams. If anything, I would say that it's not anymore just kind of like about taking the drug and waiting. Rather, people are living their life. I do recall, actually, that I had a patient who was on a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, doing great enough that wanted to cruise along, but I wanted liver function test. I can tell you, there are some cruise lines that can check for you your LFTs. And the patient thus went on their three weeks cruise. Yeah, I think, you know, incredible is exactly the right word. I mean, it's really such an exciting time um, in this field. I'm, I'm not sure there's another cancer that's received so many FDA approvals in that short period of time. Um, and, you know, much like you, you, you mentioned, I have to remark on how rewarding it is to see these advances directly impact the patients that I see in clinic. Now, of course, We've talked about the incredible responses that are now possible with these therapies, but I mean, everything's a balance, right? And so we have to consider tolerability, quality of life. Um, so tell me, can you summarize how do side effects of these therapies impact quality of life? I mean, tell us, is this a major concern that primary care providers and you know other listeners should be concerned about as they enter into this? Thanks, Amit. I'm so happy you bring this up because to be fair, number one, we have to acknowledge that there's a certain misperception and we're technically responsible for it. We kind of use the word chemotherapy, which is really a misnomer because even I have to say in some clinic, you might say it says chemotherapy room or chemotherapy chair. Actually, it's not. It's systemic therapy because if anything, chemotherapy can be applicable for cancer. It can help people, but not, it's not within the scope of what we're discussing today for liver cancer. If anything, here we're talking about specifically targeted therapies and immunotherapy. They are all under the flag of systemic therapy, but they are targeted therapies that many of them are pills and also immunotherapies that can, of course, be given IV. These, as you are asking, they definitely have potential side effects, but the aim is not really to make somebody or render somebody in, unable to really function as a normal person day to day. If anything, we see that there's a lot of benefit from the targeted therapies and immunotherapy. It can improve actually quality of life with the patients and as such improving factors that are important to the patient to be able to function in daily day life, like performance status, appetite, pain quality, and of course, pain magnitude. So, I mean, that's really great. I mean, it seems like we've truly come a far way. Side effects are manageable with good quality of life. Newer therapies, including immune checkpoint inhibitors, much better tolerated than traditional chemotherapy. Can you give us a bit more detail about what types of side effects we should be discussing with our patients and monitoring for with these new systemic therapy options? So, yes, you're right. I mean, if anything, the challenges are to be monitoring the patient with liver cancer or HCC 
is, of course, what are the potential toxicities that can occur. The adverse events can arise at different time in the treatment. If anything, they can occur with the targeted therapies, like, for example, as we said, sorafenib, rigorafenib, lenvatinib, cabozantinib. These, interestingly, will almost all of them will cause potential, not necessarily it will, we have to remember, these are potential side effects, not necessarily they will happen, but they can cause fatigue, they can cause diarrhea, they can cause kind of like some redness on the tips of the fingers and toes, which kind of like almost the, the redness of the skin and possible peeling, we call it the hand-foot skin reaction, hand-foot skin reaction, nausea vomiting, decreased appetite, hypertension, weight loss. I'm sure all our PCP colleagues are very familiar with all those symptoms, and of course they will be able to be alarmed if any of those symptoms are to be arised while they are on those therapies. Interestingly, immunotherapy, and remember we mentioned nivolumab with ipilimumab, we mentioned pembrolizumab, we mentioned atezolizumab, and these all, of course, can cause some adverse events as well. Again, not necessarily will happen, but might happen, among which, for example, Hypertension, fatigue, proteinuria, rash, pruritis, diarrhea, cough, pyrexia, decreased appetite, nausea, headache, vomiting, dizziness, hypothyroidism. You see, it's endless. I can go on and on and on. And if anything, however, please remember, especially when it comes to immunotherapy, the adverse events that can occur are very important to really be looked at in this perspective. Anything you don't like on the patient or anything the patient does not like about themselves is an adverse event until proven otherwise. In general, start with a little bit of maybe subtle skin rash, maybe after that, maybe a little bit of joint pain, diarrhea might kick in, and then this endless list of things that I just brought in. However, very important, please, hypothyroidism. Remember, you have immune system that's now under attacking the cancer, but also attacking the normal cells sometimes. Hypothyroidism and all the related matters to hypothyroidism, adrenal insufficiency, colitis, hepatitis, acute renal injury. Thankfully, are rare and are very rare, but if they are to occur, they can be life-threatening. Very important to remember for our colleagues, there are rare events like hypothyroidism, adrenal insufficiency, colitis, hepatitis, acute renal injury, but if they are rare, still they can be severe and life-threatening. You know, Gassan, it's kind of funny. As you were going through that, you reminded me of one of those commercials that we see on TV that start to list the adverse events, and you know, like the the list goes on and on. And I'm sure, you know, to our listeners, it seems like a, a long list of all possible side effects. However, I mean, much like you focused on and reiterated, this is a list of possible side effects. I mean, and that list of possible side effects are long, but I think it's important, as you mentioned that most patients won't experience, you know, all of these. I mean, so like really these are manageable AEs and, you know, particularly now with the new immunotherapies, a minority of patients do experience them. It's just important to keep a high level of suspicion. So, um, you know, the, the nice thing is overall, um, you know, I think we both agree that the side effect profile is generally acceptable and should not be a reason to avoid HEC treatment. The key um, regarding these side effects is for us to prevent, promptly recognize, and manage the AEs so patients can receive the full benefit of these treatment options, which is something that our primary, co primary care colleagues uh, can really help with, as you know. 
Um, PCPs um, have long and established relationships with their patients and may actually uncover some of these side effects um, you know, that, that we don't find out until later. Um, when we work together, successfully recognize and manage these side effects, um, we ultimately can keep our patients on treatment longer and maximize the potential benefits of these newer treatment options. So, Kassan, you know, as a hepatologist, I, I think it would be a shame if I didn't bring this up, but another challenge for HCC treatments is the underlying liver disease. Um, as you know, you know, over 90% of our patients with HCC have underlying liver disease, if not cirrhosis. And this can also have a serious impact on treatments as well as quality of life. So how can our primary care colleagues help with this aspect of HEC care? Thank you, Amit. Uh, if anything, our colleagues in primary care are going to be a key player in regard to identifying patients with liver cancer, hopefully early in stage of disease. Understandably, not necessarily we'll be able to catch everybody. It does not mean that we're not doing a good job, but definitely we're going to do our best in that regard. If you recall, and as we mentioned in the previous two podcasts, patients with viral etiology, being hepatitis B or hepatitis C, and non-viral risk factors, including the nephild that can lead to NASH and alcohol, can all lead to development of HCC, and it's very important to be aware of those risk factors. As such, conducting regular HCC screening for our patients, especially with cirrhosis, as we mentioned beforehand, will be very important to help identify patients at an earlier stage of disease so we can refer them to the right specialist and hopefully get them for a curative intent approach of treatment. Understand we should not feel bad if not everybody will present this uh, with, with this advanced disease, neither are the physicians or the patient themselves, but of course the effort should continue to do our best in that regard. And as such, I repeat, early identification is really key and PCP physicians, MPs and APPs are truly the frontline defenders. Yeah, I think, Hassan, this is, um, you know, really well said, and I'm glad you brought this up. Um, you know, we always talk about the importance of multidisciplinary management for our patients with HCC, and I think it's critical for us to remember that primary care providers are a key member of that team. Primary care providers um, are not only critical for monitoring liver disease and screening for HCC in at-risk patients, but also help as patients go through their HCC-directed therapies. I know I found PCP colleagues extremely helpful when managing comorbid conditions, including hypertension or hypothyroidism, which, as you mentioned, can be exacerbated by HCC therapies, as well as helping to really maximize you know, a patient's quality of life. Primary care providers can help address best supportive care approaches in the sad event of disease progression, deteriorating liver dysfunction, and when a patient becomes terminal. I make it a point to try and regularly communicate with my patient's primary care providers so they continue to feel engaged every step of the way as somebody progresses through their HEC journey. So in summary, we really share today exciting changes in the treatment landscape for HEC where we've seen increased eligibility for curative therapies, including liver transplantation, and an explosion of new therapies, including the, the introduction of immunotherapy for patients with more advanced stages of disease. With the change in the treatment landscape comes the challenge of monitoring for and managing side effects to ensure that patients receive the most benefit out of each treatment option. But as we mentioned, these therapies in general are well tolerated 
and with you know good recognition and good management, these should be addressable and manageable in the vast majority of patients. Further, due to the promising benefit of these novel targeted and immunotherapies, patients should be expected to live longer, requiring the continued involvement and management by primary care providers as a key member of the multidisciplinary team. There are many aspects of HEC care in which the primary care provider can make a significant impact on a patient's life. From the start, helping to identify patients with HEC early by screening at-risk patients for HEC may lead to a cure. When patients are on treatment, PCPs can help with monitoring for and managing side effects. We can also work together to manage comorbidities and identify the best supportive care approach for patients with terminal stage disease. I'd like to end, Gassan, by thanking you again for joining me on this podcast. As always, it's been a pleasure to talk through all of these different aspects. I'd like to thank everyone who took the time out of their day to listen to our podcast um, uh, for us, and hopefully they enjoyed the discussion and learned some aspects about HEC management. To obtain your CME credit, please visit primed.com and complete a short post-assessment. If you listen to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description where there is a direct link to the activity page on primed.com for claiming CME credit.